A Look Within podcast is brought to you by the South Carolina Department of Mental Health, a healthcare organization providing innovative mental health and wellness services across all of South Carolina. Learn more about our services and resources at www.scdmh.net. On this month's episode, we discuss and explore the topic of grief, loss, and trauma with the incomparable Bonnie Compton, an end-of-life doula, conscious living and dying coach, speaker, and certified RTM trauma practitioner. She is also a child and adolescent therapist, a parent coach, recce practitioner, and pediatric nurse practitioner. Bonnie is the author of the book, Mothering with Courage, and her compassion for others and her commitment to helping those who are suffering shines through in all of her work. We all come face to face with loss and the subsequent grief that follows. It's an important part of the human experience, and yet it's often something that is avoided in Western culture. During our conversation, Ms. Compton speaks directly about the importance of the grieving process, how we may come to accept and make peace with the losses in our lives, and she offers helpful tools, resources, and effective treatment modalities for those who are suffering. Bonnie, thanks so much for for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to be on our podcast. And uh, this is a really important conversation for me and I think many others, this conversation or this topic of grief and loss. And I remember those moments when I was just in deep, deep grief and and how, I, I for me, I remember just how alone I felt and how separated I felt from everything. And so I really admire the work that you do when you're when you're working with people who are going through this. Well, what brought you to do this kind of really powerful, important work for people? Sure. Well, first, David, I want to thank you for having me here. I'm honored and I appreciate the time to share the knowledge that I have and to help others. My why for doing this, I believe, is I lost my 15 my 19-year-old brother and 44-year-old dad, nine months apart when I was 15 and 16. They both had sudden deaths. My brother had an accident at work and my dad was had a massive heart attack. Jeez. And so I woke up to the fact that we're not all guaranteed a long life, right? Yeah. And I also woke up to the fact how precious life is. Because I remember saying both times when I was told I didn't get a chance to say goodbye. I didn't get to tell them I love them. And then I went on a few years later to nursing school and I learned about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who was the pioneer of the death and dying movement. And I was like, someone's speaking my language. I want to talk about this. Yeah. But nursing school colleagues were not comfortable talking, right? Yeah. So I feel like in my career, the various things I've done, I've been brought back full circle and I became an end-of-life doula and a grief specialist. And so I think, you know, the seeds were planted many years ago, but that's that's my why for doing this work. It is a calling for me, for sure. Yeah, I certainly appreciate you for, for doing that work because I remember those times when I'm, boy, did I need a lot of help and, and I got it and it was just... Um, I don't know how I could have kind of gotten myself out of that. What, what are some things that you tell someone 
who is in so much pain and grief when if it's so fresh, you know, like the loss of a, of a loved one or, or something like that, or some sort of tragedy that happens. Sure, sure. Well, one of the things I tell them is grief can be very isolating because our society is not comfortable talking about grief. Because yeah. if we talk about grief, then we need to acknowledge that we die, right? Yeah. <laughs> We're a death-fearing society. So I encourage them to surround themselves with people, their people who can support them in this. And sometimes it's not who we think it is. It's not family and friends, which can add more layers of sadness and hurt. And it's not because our family family and friends don't love us. They don't know what to do. Yeah. So it may be someone else who has gone through a death of a loved one. And I know, you know, the uh, research that came out, the report by the Surgeon General that isolation is an epidemic in our country. Yeah. And that is true in grief. And it only adds to people's grief because in order for grief to heal, it must be witnessed. Because I remember, and again, I'm, I'm trying to personalize this so I can really get at the essence of it. But my first instinct was to just go in and isolate myself. Um, right. From that. And, and it really kind of, uh, I found myself sort of trapped at that point. Stuck. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. And it is easy to get stuck in it. I also remind people that your grief, your grief is as deep as your love is for that person who died. Hmm. Right? If you didn't care about that person, you wouldn't grieve as much. So somebody's in in just it's just happened or it, it, it's sort of fresh. You know, how do people begin to heal from that kind of grief? Right. Well, first, and you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with the stages of death and dying and stages of grief, and she never intended for it to be, this is the hard, fast rule, and it's linear. Grief is not linear. It's not you do this, and you do this, and you do this. Yeah. It's like a roller coaster, and then it loops, and then it comes back, right? Yeah. So in the beginning, of course, even if you knew your loved one was going to die, say they had a terminal illness, you are never fully prepared for that, right? Yeah. You may be grieving their death ahead of time, which we refer to as anticipatory grief. You're grieving knowing that they're going to die. But when it happens, our bodies are, are in a shock mode, right? Yeah. And what happens is then a protective mechanism is the neurochemicals in the brain kind of flood the brain as a protective mechanism to get you through those first days. Yeah. And then it's easy to get in the to-do mode, right? Plan the funeral, close out accounts, all of that. Yeah. So initially, that's what people are experiencing. I've had many clients tell me, and there's a lot of truth to this, four or five months later, it is worse than it was initially. And is that because, so like the to-do mode, that's interesting to me. Like, so I would imagine there's maybe some level of comfort because there's like an avoidance to it, even though you're, so you're planning, uh, doing the practical things. And so some of the other elements and the emotions and feelings and all of that just sort of are put to the side. You don't have space for that at the moment. And there are things to do, right? It's also people are trying to look for some sort of normalcy in life because no, life is no longer normal. Yeah. 
And so, you know, if they can plan, if they can have their checklist, it kind of keeps them grounded. But what can easily happen, and I know of a woman whose husband died two and a half years ago, and she got very busy and he had a big practice and, you know, closing out. And then she was the professional working. She's now two and a half years really beginning to grieve yeah, because she didn't allow herself. It was easier to stay distracted and busy. And, you know, our society rewards us for being busy and productive. Well, what does that look like when all of a sudden, you know, you mentioned two and a half years later, somebody now is going through the, the grieving process. I mean, what is right. That? Well, as I tell in, individuals that buried feelings never die. And so they are going to come up. Grief is going to find you. You can try distracting, avoiding, but it's asking to come up and be healed. Now, when I say healed, for some word, for some people that upsets them, I will never heal from my loved one's death. I'm not saying that you forget about your loved one, that you don't yeah. care anymore. Of course you care, but you're able to go on in life, not go on from your grief, move forward in life. And so, you know, I've had so many people, again, that I work with, I don't want to feel this pain. And I said, over time, if you allow yourself to grieve, fully grieve, and that doesn't mean you for 24 seven, you sit in your grief, but that means you move forward with your grief. You move through it, not around it, under it, over it. And what, what, what might that look like? Just Okay. So I recommend I'm working with a widower now and, you know, the beginning of the grief journey is you may be fine for a little while. And all of a sudden it's like a tsunami of waves come over you when you least expect it. Right. Yeah. So coming up with a plan, what are you going to do in those moments? Can you pause, allow yourself to feel it? I think it's Jill Bolte Taylor, the neuroscientist. I think she published the research if, with our feelings, with our emotions, if we allow them to move through our body and not try to push them away, resist them, they only last 60 to 90 seconds. But what well, we do is that, we- Say that again, because that sounds- Okay, risky. so the feelings that we have that come over us, yeah. if we don't try to resist them, push them away, distract ourselves, or attach thoughts to them, we're just like, here comes the sadness again. Here comes the anger again. Allow it just to be. They Those feelings dissipate within 60 to 90 seconds. So for example, I was working with a mom who lost her baby and it had been five or six months and she had been busy in the to-do mm -hmm. mode. And she said, I'm finding, she was a teacher. And so- it was hard to find time to grieve during the day. Yeah. But she said, I have been crying all day long for two days and I can't stop. And I said, how would it be if you created time on your calendar, on your day, that you're going to stop and feel whatever you're feeling and remind yourself these overwhelming emotions, if you just notice them and keep breathing and let them be. They will last 60 to 90 seconds. They'll come back again. Yeah. 
And she did it as an experiment. And she said, oh my gosh, I just feel like a burden has been lifted off of me. And I don't feel as heavy hearted. Of course, she was still sad. One of the other things I recommend is talk to grief. You can call grief whatever you want. I see you. I know you're here right now. This afternoon, I'm going to sit down with you. Some people think of their grief, they put it in a box in the closet, and they get to decide when they're going to take it out and attend to it. Yeah. I have a widower I'm, I'm working with, and he keeps it in his wife's fancy suitcase in the closet. That is still up there. He said, that's where my grief is. When his loved ones came in to help him donate things in the closet, they started to take the suitcase. He goes, no, 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 there are things in there. They didn't know what it was. He said, I'm keeping this. If there's a level of resistance around the grief, sort of like what you were mentioning on the teacher, it could feel like it's just constant. But if you were to sort of pause and stop and take some time to be with it in a more mindful way, then that's when you notice that they they dissipate the, those feelings. Yes, and, and you can compartmentalize it. And what people who are grieving find over time, and I remind them, you will not feel as much pain as you continue grieving. Your pain will be replaced with more memories of the person and gratitude that they were in your life. But initially, it's important to feel the pain, but not become overwhelmed by it. Yeah. Well, you mentioned- Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it makes sense. Because, you know, when I, I remember hearing that, and I needed to hear it because certainly in my mind, I was like, it, it's never going to change. You know, I'm going to, this is sort of the space I'm going to be in. Right. Um, that I can't imagine it moving on into some other space. And what would that look like? Uh, you know, and and I remember there were so many different issues. There was the practical issues of how am I going to survive without this person? Like at a practical mm -hmm. level, there was the love for the person. So the attachment, there was um, the personal feeling of having to address death and dying for myself. Or So there were all mm -hmm. these sorts of things moving around. You mentioned Elizabeth Kubler-Ross a couple times. I wonder if for our audience, you could just sort of give a broad stroke to this, this process or these stages. I know they're not linear, but just so people can kind of hear them. Sure, sure. And I don't have them in front of me. So no, just forgive me if I, but shock, denial, like this isn't really happening. Yeah. Bargaining. Please take me, not the person who's dying, my loved one. I will do anything, right? Acceptance, which people really bristle at that. I will never accept that my child died. It's it's not okay that your child or your spouse or whoever died, that it is not okay. But the reality that it happened. Yeah. Is this that, is, is that part of that shift that you mentioned that over time... Yes, yes. And when you can integrate back into your life while you still grieve, right? You're not the same person you were. And that's part of the problem. Family and friends, can you just get back to how you were? Mm. That's never going to happen. Yeah. And those that are asking that just want to feel more comfortable around you, right? Yeah. 
and you will move forward. Sometimes people say it was the worst thing that ever happened. And it was the best thing because it changed me as a person. That's interesting. Explain that a little bit more, Bonnie. What do you mean by that? So for some people, many people, they're just going through life mindlessly, right? Yeah. They're just trudging. They're surviving the day. Sometimes people say who have been given a diagnosis of cancer, it woke me up to life. I'm yeah. so grateful for my cancer. Hmm. So with death, you know, people ask me, Bonnie, how can you do this work? Aren't you depressed? Yeah. I said, no, it's so life giving for me hmm. because it is a reminder, pay attention to the precious things in life. You know, there's David Kessler, who I've trained with, and he trained with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. He taught, he has a book out, Making Meaning, the sixth, I think it's the sixth stage of grief. And it doesn't mean, oh, my child died, and there must be a reason behind this. You know, God wanted them, or another angel was needed. The things that people like to try to comfort people yeah. who've lost children or whatever, which is not helpful at all. But I'm working with a mom now. She and I, she's she lost her nine-year-old daughter here in Charleston to a brain tumor they didn't know she had. And so within three days, she had died. And she and I are creating a grief support group for parents here in Charleston. I was actually surprised there are no grief groups for Is parents. That, do you have it? What's it called? Do you have that yet? Gentle Heart Journeys, and it will begin in February. The reason I'm bringing this up is they were, of course, devastated by their daughter Inslee's death. Yeah. But they decided they didn't want other families to have to go through this. And so they created the Munka Foundation. The Munka is named after their daughter's um, stuffed animal Munka. Hmm. And they have a foundation and they raise money to support pediatric brain cancer research because only 4% of funds go to pediatric cancer research. And so they are making meaning of her life. And as Karen says, her life mattered more than her death. And so they are doing things to honor their daughter. That is making meaning. Now, some people think I can't do a foundation. There's a, it, it doesn't need to be big. It could be planting a tree. It could be remembering yeah. how grateful you were that they came into your life yeah. and how perhaps they changed you as a person. So making meaning being, so that's sort of, Dr. Kessler's proposal on the the sixth stage of based off of Kubler-Ross's stages is what you're Yes, about. yes. And he asked permission. He had trained with her. I mean, she has since died, but he was a grief specialist. And then his 21-year-old son, I think five years ago, died by suicide. And he said he thought he knew everything about grief until he lost his son. So another question I have for you is this issue of that I hear a lot is traumatic grief. Because it all seems traumatic to me, right? Well, what's the difference between sure, traumatic grief sure. and grief? Or is there? Right. And, and there is an overlap. So let's say someone's 95-year-old grandfather is dying, right? It's still very sad. You may not have ever wanted them to die. But it is more expected, right? Yes. Versus 
I believe the death of any child, even if they had cancer and you knew they were going to die, it's traumatic because children are not supposed to die. Yeah. And yet they do, right? Yeah. So a suicide is a traumatic death. I do want to point out that the term, thank goodness, committed suicide is being changed to death by suicide. Because to say someone committed suicide, it's almost like they committed murder. They committed a sin. Yeah, <laughs> we right. don't say they they committed diabetes. <laughs> right, right. You know, and that's how they died. So it's really the new term that I'm trying to educate people on is death. They died death by suicide. They died by suicide because there's such a stigma attached to suicide. People often think, well, they were selfish. Right. You know, they didn't know a way out. They were in a deep hole. And they actually, many of them thought, those who have survived their suicide attempt, they thought they would actually help their loved ones by doing this. Well, so with regards to the traumatic grief piece, is part of it that you just keep reliving the trauma or, you know, like I'm still in terms of distinguishing. Yes. Yes. So for example, if it was a car accident, they died in a car accident. Okay. Yeah. And perhaps the person there lived through it and they remember seeing them in the car afterwards Yeah. or a gunshot wound when someone sees them like that. Uh, someone I'm working with, he knew his wife was going to die. They kept fighting the cancer up until the end, but the last day was traumatic. And he kept seeing these images over and over in his mind. And he kept hearing the same sounds. And with trauma, we store trauma in our brain in a way that it gets stuck. And it's in these loops that we replay over and over again, as if it's happening in the current moment. Okay. So with a traumatic death, someone with an addiction at the end and, you know, a loved one finds them with a needle in their arm. Those are the images they see over and over again. Right. Wow. So painful. And so when they're, when that's happening, I know that you do work with some groundbreaking kind of work around, uh, it's called RTM, is it? Yes. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? And is that related to traumatic grief specifically or? RTM stands for Reconsolidation of Traumatic Memories. So it's it helps rearrange the memories in a way. It really is not psychologically based. It's neurologically based. But it helps retrain where those memories are so that you're not playing it over and over and over again in your mind. It's almost, it's not like it erases your memory. You still remember it, but you're not hooked with the trauma in terms of the emotions of trauma are fear, terror, and helplessness. Okay. So when we offer RTM to someone, it helps rearrange those memories. So they are no longer playing them over and over again. They still remember the event, but they're no longer feeling the emotions of fear, terror, and helplessness. What that does when you can, I'm going to say, dissolve the trauma, you'll still remember the traumatic event, but it then allows for the feelings of, and the emotions related to grief, which are sadness, anger, you know, all of the th- guilt, the things that 
are associated with grief allows you to feel them and heal them. So the traumas, in, in essence, is it's preventing you from getting to that space where you're able to kind of look at those those feelings. And- right. It can it can really keep people stuck in their grief because they're replaying that over and over again. And those are the emotions of the traumatic memory that are keeping them stuck there. Right. So we're not trying to take away someone's feelings of grief and say, oh, it's fine what happened. It's not fine what happened. But I believe personally that if you can begin healing the trauma, you then can begin the the grief process fully and healing the grief. And then we'll get to this in a second around how does somebody, where does somebody go to seek help or something such as RTM? I want to, I want to talk about that in a second, but the other piece I know that we haven't really touched on is how might other people support somebody who is in the midst of grief, grief or is dealing with a significant loss? Yes, but can I for a moment circle back to of RTM? Um, yeah, please, let's because talk Because I, I want to explain, RTM is a very short two to three sessions max. That's it. The protocol is you're not to do any more than three sessions. Okay. It is a very simple visualization process. So okay. simple, you may wonder how it even works, and yet it does. Research is showing us that it has a 90% effective rate, and they're using it with veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. And 20 years later, the, tr- the PTSD is gone, still 20 years later. So I'm always amazed when I offer this to people, and it could be around a traumatic death, it could be sexual abuse, a traumatic car accident, whatever. They walk into my office looking one way, carrying all of this, and they leave just so much lighter. One of the gentlemen that I had talked about with replaying his wife's last day, even though they knew she was going to die, I'm also working with him about grief. And probably a month after we had done RTM, I said, so tell me about the images that you've been seeing, because he lives near the hospital. And so he walks by it daily, which is where she died. And he looked at me and he said, I never think about it anymore. He said, I guess it worked. I hadn't even thought about it. Those were gone. And he could then grieve. Anyway. And it's a visualization process. It's a- yes, you create movies, short movies, but you never watch the traumatic movie. What I love about RTM, it is not re-traumatizing. We don't want to re-traumatize the person. All right, so you wanted to know how we can support others? I struggle sometimes if, if somebody is dealing with a loss, you know, what, you know, how do I support them? What What can I do? Well, I I remember vividly when my dad died and, you know, years ago, everybody brought food and everybody came back to the house afterwards. And I remember watching people and laugh. They were laughing and eating. And I went upstairs to my room and fell apart. And my aunt came and found me. And I said, how dare they do this? What I now realize is often people are telling stories about the loved one and reminiscing and remembering Uh and also trying to bring some sort of normalcy. Right. Yeah. I remember after my 
uh, dad died and I was off school for a week and going back to school. And as I say, I was a junior. It was like in high school. Um, it was like the part, actually I was a sophomore. It was like the parting of the Red Sea. The students literally just backed away. Right. Yeah. Their lockers. They saw me coming because they huh. didn't know what to do. So when I was raising my own four kids, I would tell them, just say something. I'm sorry. I'm here for you. Yeah. Don't ignore your friend. Yeah. And so I, one of the things I highly recommend is educate yourself about grief. Listen to podcasts, read books. I mean, just listening to this podcast today, hopefully yeah. they will have learned more about grief. Get comfortable with grief. We all experience grief at some point. And there's other types of grief, like loss of a relationship, estrangement in a family. I mean, there's a lot loss of a, you know, a career. There's lots of different grief. If you find that you're struggling with the right words, simply say, I know words are not going to help, but I want you to know I'm here for you hmm. and yeah. mean it. Don't ask someone, let me know if you need anything, because chances are they're not even going to know what they need. Karen, the mom that she and I are doing this parent grief support group with, she remembered after her daughter died, people would drop off toilet paper, paper towels, things like that. She said, so we didn't have to go to the store because it was yeah. so hard to leave the house and go to the grocery store, something you normally do, but you yeah. run into kids there and yeah. you're walking, you know, so do those kind of things. Send a text, call, but just keep doing it. Don't do it. You know, often people flood with cards and texts and all of that. And then they kind of go back to life. And that's when isolation really hits hard for some people. Offer to do the groceries, you know, this week, just put me down on the calendar and send me a list. I'm going to buy your groceries for you. Yeah. Or I will pick up your kids for the next two weeks. Yeah. Leave your laundry outside your door and I'll do that. Just be proactive and don't wait for them to reach out to say what they need. Where does somebody go to get help? We've talked about different kinds of models and process, mm -hmm. and we've hinted at things in terms of in terms of help. What would you recommend to folks in terms of where, you know, where they might start? Sure, sure. I would recommend finding someone who really knows about supporting others who are grieving. There are wonderful therapists and there are also people that think, oh yes, I can help someone who's grieving. In my mind, it is critical to find someone who specializes in grief. Saying this, take a look and ask or look at their credentials, look at the trainings they've done. That okay. is what I would recommend. There are many books out there. There's actually a dad, Colin Campbell, who wrote a book, There Are No Words, and he lost his two teen, his two teenage kids died in the backseat of the car and he was driving. Someone came, a drunk driver and plowed into them. And he had done, he had looked for and worked with therapists. He read books and he, he just kept coming up with, okay, there's no timeline, but what do I do? You know? And he finally thought every time someone said to him, there are no words to try to console him. 
offer their sympathy. He said that stopped the conversation because if there are no words, then you've just shut down the conversation here. So he's written this book. There are a lot of good books out there. I recommend that one, Bearing the Unbearable by Joanne Cacciatore. So books, podcast, finding a good grief. I consider myself a grief specialist and grief coach. Yes. It is not therapy. It is helping guide you through the grieving process Okay. and offering hope because it's not going to stay the same. Also, there are grief support groups. Some people really uh. want to be supported in a grief support group. Others want to do it one-on-one. If I can also add, David, and I don't know when this is going to air, but Kim Hallen and I, she owns uh, Unbridled. It's a, a f- small farm with rescued horses. Mm-hmm. And after training with Joanne Cacciatore and I knew Kim, she and I talked about helping support people who are grieving and doing it out in nature. And we're going to offer a grief retreat, a day-long retreat in the spring. They're just very different ways to help with your grief and the healing. So Bonnie, what would you want our listeners to know? What is something that uh, that you feel like that they should know before we, we end here today? It's going to be a reminder and it's going to be an ask from my part to, again, learn more about grief, become more comfortable supporting people who are grieving because our society is becoming too isolated as it is. And people who are grieving do not need to be isolated. They need to be supported. The other piece I'm going to say as an end-of-life doula is make sure you have your own end-of-life plans documented. That is so important. And only 30% of people do that. And I don't care what age you are. Younger people die also. Don't leave your loved ones wondering what to do. How would you document that too? So there are, um, yeah, there talk to your healthcare provider that you want to have it in writing, your advanced directives known, Uh, name a healthcare agent so that if you cannot make decisions, they can make decisions for you. There's a great document, fivewishes.org, that will walk you through the process. So it's important to think about that. And I I was working with a a woman and she said, I don't want to burden my daughter with this. I said, you're going to unburden her when you say, these are my wishes. Can you honor them? She will have a plan when you die. Grief is universal. We all experience it. And there actually is beauty and grief. It's hard to understand at the time, but so many people share gifts that have come from it that they never could have predicted. It is a journey and it's an important journey that we take ourselves and that we're supported through that journey and to really wake up to the preciousness of life. I'm David Diana, host and producer of A Look Within, Conversations on Mental Health and Well-Being. We want to thank Bonnie Compton for joining us today, and you may learn more about her work at gentleheartjourneys.com. That's gentleheartjourneys.com. And of course, we want to thank all of you for listening and hope you'll join us next time. A Look Within, Conversations on Mental Health and Well-Being podcast is hosted and produced by David Diana 
and the South Carolina Department of Mental Health. We hope you'll join us for our next conversation.